Pastor Adam Lavecki here. This is a sermon live from Rescue Church. We hope it blesses you. So today I want to talk about image. And essentially this is a teaching on idolatry. Image in the Greek is the word ikon. And ikon, in another way to say it, is a representation. Meaning an image is a representation of another source material. That's what an image is. And if you look at the book of Romans, the longest letter that Paul wrote, there's, he uses the word ikon only twice. And it's really interesting how he uses these two words because it's very different. The first time he uses the word ikon is in Romans 1.23 when he says, the unrighteous exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So he's using the word image for idolatry here. The second time he uses the word ikon is in Romans 8, when he says he also predestined, he's talking about the saints, predestined the saints to be conformed to the image of his son. So in this case, he's using the word ikon for image bearing, bearing the image of God. And it's, rather it's a rather profound connection that Paul is making here by using the word ikon in these two very different ways. Because essentially, they are two sides of the same coin. The coin being us. Because we're created to hold an image. That's our design, that's our creation. We're supposed to hold an image and reflect it back onto creation. See, the question is not, do we worship? It's what we worship. We're created to worship something. So it's not if we worship, but it's what do we worship and what do we reflect back into the creation based on what we worship. So that is our image-bearing design that we're going to talk about today. And my hope is that if you better understand the, relation, the relationship between these two things, it will make us better stewards of our image-bearing designs. So let's talk a little bit about culture. If you look at the culture outside the kingdom today, if you look around us, it's deeply, deeply, deeply steeped in idolatry. That's what's going on in reality. And as kingdom ambassadors, we have to understand culture. We need to be good observers of culture because we need to navigate through culture to understand what's going on. And also because as Christians, we're not meant to live in just silos. We're not meant to live in these bubbles, sing songs to each other and love on each other. We're called to engage the world. In order to engage the world, we have to understand culture. For example, as missionaries, when we go to another country, we don't just go in blind, but we try to understand what's their culture, what's going on, so we know how to engage, how to communicate. And that's the same thing around us today. We need to understand what's going on with the idolatry in our culture so we could be better agents of the kingdom. Not so we could just be proud and puff ourselves up and point fingers and say we're better than, but no, so we could help, we could reach out. Because when people struggle, underneath their struggles, it's idolatry. Underneath their influences is idolatry. Underneath their pain is idolatry. And we have to be agents of the kingdom to say, hey, we got something better. And that's the kingdom of God. And let me be, be clear. Idolatry is not this new thing that we're seeing today. It's always been the central evil since day one. But it may seem a little crazy today because we see culture changing so fast at rapid pace. You know, what's acceptable five years ago is not acceptable today. What wasn't acceptable five years ago is acceptable today. And it's like crazy. And I think that part of that is because of technology, the way we're so connected, 
culture changes at a hyper-fast speed. And when idolatry is at the heart of that, you're going to see things just churn, churn and churn quicker. But let's just take down the walls of our belief systems, our politics, our ideologies, our values. Just bring down the walls for a sec. If you really look at just people in general, all of us around us, for the most part, we want the same thing, which is human flourishing. We want the betterment of our lives. We want the betterment of our families' lives. We want the betterment of society and culture. We want the betterment of generations, right? All of us want the next generation to have a better world than the one we left behind. And that's outside of just Christians, that's all of us. But then why is it that the, the road to get there from what we believe and what the world believes is so different? And why is it the world, the direction that's going is so, the gap is widening even more and more. Why is it getting much more different? The answer is idolatry. That's really what's, what's going on. Because even with the best intentions, even with people's best hearts and intentions to make a better society and make a better world, when idolatry is at the root of it, the consequences of it is the corruption and degradation of society and culture. David in Psalm 16 says, you are my Lord, apart from you I have no good thing. We need God at the center, even with the best intentions. The only path to a better society is in redeem recreation is to get back under the lordship of God. We need to call out idolatry for what it is and get back into the lordship of God. And we could also lead others to that way, and that's the mission of the church. We also need to take idolatry very seriously because, and keep ourselves in check, keep our hearts in check for our idols because idolatry is in direct opposition to two mission-critical things for the church. And these are the two things. Number one, it's our inheritance through God's covenant faithfulness. Idolatry tries to rob that from us. And number two, our design and responsibility to be God's image-bearing creations. When there's idolatry, it, it, it gets in the way of being pure reflections of God. And with that, I'll get into today's text. So today we're going to look into Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 40. And just to give you a little setup on where this text begins. So this comes right after Numbers in the beginning of Deuteronomy where Israel, with Moses leading it, was wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years to get to their promised land. And the reason it took this long is not because God made it take this long, it was their fault. In the, in the travel, in the path to the promised land, out of fear, they did not go into the promised land and they stepped into idolatry, they stepped into disobedience, and that generation robbed themselves of the promised land that they deserved. That was promised from God. So after 40 years, here's a great thing. God doesn't lie, God keeps his promises. So when he said, I'll give you the promised land, he still had to deliver on that for the next generation. So this is Moses handing off the promised land to the next generation. Even Moses couldn't enter into the promised land because he disobeyed. So he's looking over to the promised land and giving his final speech sermon to his, to his Israelites and warning them on what to do, what to follow, and how to be a blessing to the world and how to inherit this promised land and live it out to the fullest. 
So what is it that Moses needs to communicate with them? This is how he jumps off this sermon. Let's start in verse, verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all their, these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him, and what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Let me give you a brief context of the near, ancient Near East, of the times of Abraham and Israel, to, to make more sense of what's going on here. You see, when we read the Bible, when we read the Bible, we see how Abraham just, Abraham, um, God just approaches Abraham, Abram at the time, and they have a relationship. But what we don't realize, if you don't understand the world of the time, is that Abram didn't just grow up in this monotheistic culture where it just made sense he had one God that he followed. That at that time, there were hundreds and thousands of gods. There was gods of regions, gods of nature, different things. So it was normal to have a polytheistic worldview where people worship different gods with different things. And Abram was in that culture. So it was such a radical thing, a radical step of faith for him to hear a god who has no name. Back then, every god had a name. There was god of this, there was god of land, god of the skies, god of the stars. They had names, Egyptian names, Canaan names. But Abram, a god without a name, said, I'll follow you. That's such a radical thing. And this is the plan that God was trying to execute through Abraham and his descendants. In a world polluted and infested with so many false gods, so many gods that don't give life, that just take and give sin and just, just destroy the world, he had to show the world, I am the only God. I am the only source of life. And how does he do that? He needs to create a people a people, a people that's only devoted to him, devoted to him only. And what is a tool he needs to use to create devotion so that other people can see, wow, this people only follows one God? It's rules, laws, and statutes, right? So God doesn't create laws just to say, I want to control you, I want to be the boss, but he's doing it to create a boundary, a boundary to show the world that, hey, they're set apart for the Lord. And people, when they're set apart from the Lord, this is what life could look like. So that's really what's going on here. It's about covenant. At the heart of the law of God, it's about covenant. Are you devoted to me only? Are you devoted to me only? Because God is faithful. He always, always will be faithful, but will you be? That's the question. Okay, so let's move on to verse 9. He continues, says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, make them known to your children and your children's children. See, God's plan is not just about you and your life today, but it's about generations. What you observe and obey today and you bring on to your children, they inherit that. They inherit that blessing. So God's not just thinking of today. He was thinking of eternity. Verse 10. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so 
and you, make, and you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with the fire to the heart of heaven wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. See, this is very important. There was no form when God revealed himself. He wasn't looking for um, to be made into a, an idol, a statue to be bowed down to. The voice is what mattered because to worship God is to listen and obey. That's all that he cared about. Verse 13, and he declared to you his covenant. See, it's about his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. How do you perform a covenant? You obey. And that is the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on the two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the sea. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that your Lord God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. You see, Moses just covering all grounds here, of all the different gods, all the different idols. He's saying any idols in the form of people, critters, birds, animals, skies, he's just saying all of it. He's saying that is not good. But how can we apply this to our context today? Because in our world, in our modern society, it's not like we're going out and bowing to idols and stuff, right? But you see, we, we missed the point if we think the issue of idolatry is about bowing down to other gods, spiritual darkness, allowing demons to enter, it's beyond that. Christopher Wright has this quote. While gods on idols may be implements of or gateways to the world of the demonic, the overwhelming verdict of scripture is that they are the work of human hands, constructs of our own fallen and rebellious imagination. So I'll tell you a little story. So 10 years ago, I was, I was still like a, a young Christian. I was like only two, three years in. I went on my first mission trip to India. And when we went to India, um, some of the things we did is we, we visited villages. And we, we're, we're rolling with the pastors there, the local pastors, and they would show us to um, recent converts to Christianity, people who practice Hinduism and all the other things. We'll, uh, they're just like a house visit, like a check of how you're doing. So recently, so we went to this one house, and they were recently became Christian, maybe like within that year, and we're just talking to them, we're sitting in their living room, they're being very hospitable. But the crazy thing that I saw at the time was, so, so if you understand Hindu, Hindu religion, they have like over a million gods, and they worship all of them. So in, in their house, they had, I don't even know the names, but they had, one god here, another god here, another god there. The whole room was filled with gods hanging, and in the middle was Jesus. You see, they believed and accepted Jesus, but he was still up there with all the other gods. And, you know, me being in that, in that season, you know, not really understanding, I, I was, like, repulsed. I, I, I felt, I don't know, I felt uncomfortable in there. I was, like, angry. I was upset. I, I, I walked out. I was like, I can't be in here. I walked out. Because I'm like, how can you say Jesus is your Lord and you got all these other gods hanging in the, in, the, in the room with them? 
So I was walking, I was kind of outside, just spending time to myself, and man, God humbled me. He said, DK, yeah, you see all those other gods, right, in, in, in their house, but what about your bedroom? And he showed me my bedroom. What do you have hanging up in your, in your, in your walls? My career, money, cars, women, clothes, music, whatever it is. He just showed that to me, and I got, I got so uh, humbled there. Because you see, the real idolatry is not in the gods or the dark spiritual forces. It's what pulls away at your devotion, your one and only devotion to Jesus. That's what idolatry is. Okay, let's get back to the text. Um, verse 20. Chapter 4, verse 20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Okay, when we hear that term, a jealous God, we need to understand something. Because in our human context, the only jealousy that we could relate to is human jealousy. But that's not what a jealous God means. Because God is not insecure. He's not needy. That's not what the jealousy comes from. What that means is jealousy is actually the other side of love. Think about it. You are only as jealous of something as, as much as you love that thing. And that's why he's a jealous God. It's, it's describing the level of his deep love for us. Because he's saying that, hey, apart from me, if I'm not the only thing, those other things, they're going to destroy you. I don't want you to get hurt. This is for your benefit. Because everything else makes poor gods. They're going to demand things from you, but they'll never sustain everything you need. Nothing. It may seem to work for a while, but eventually they're going to fail you. Ultimately, every other thing will fail you if you make something your god. Okay, let's continue with verse 25. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left in few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. So Moses is giving a warning. I don't believe this is like a prophetic word because this is actually what happens to Israel, but he's just giving a warning. He's saying, you're going to step into the promised land. There's going to be other cultures there with idolatry. If you battle those things, this is what's going to happen to you. He's saying this, these are the consequences of idolatry. And if you look at the whole Old Testament and the history of Israel, that's the constant war. You see Israel um, go through Reformation. The king takes all the idols away. They're renewed. And then they fall back into idolatry. And then back again, back and forth, back and forth. The war is against idolatry. 
The war is against, is God your only thing or not? You know, Israel went to idolatry to look for security and significance, but they lost that very thing they were going for that they had in God already. Okay, verse 29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart, with all your soul, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. This is our beautiful God. Even when you fall to idolatry, even when you commit adultery on God and you are in your lowest points, you will seek him. Your heart's going to seek God and he will be there. He won't leave you there. That is the mercy of God. God will not leave you alone. His covenant righteousness is guaranteed because God's, that's God's promise. His word is always standing. So Pastor Adam likes to say, God doesn't run out of mercy, but you run out of time. Right? That's all it is. Can you receive his mercy and not squander that? Okay, I'm going to step away from the text and just get a little bit into idols. These are some properties and attributes of idols. Idolatry makes us forget the goodness of God. Even when God is the blessing on your life, when there's idolatry, it makes you forget it was him who gave it. In Jeremiah 23, it says, Who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. Idolatry makes us forget. Idolatry is like imprisonment. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee, flee from idolatry, escape from idolatry. That means idolatry is not just something where you just keep it at arm's length or you just resist, but it has a pull. It has a pull to, to capture you. So we've got to flee from idolatry. Idolatry sows confusion. In Isaiah 42, it says, All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. Idolatry is like a trap. In Psalm 106, it says, They serve their idols, which became a snare to them. It's a trap. Idolatry is a grift. A grift, a trick and con game. You know what a grift is, right? It's like a, like a shady like con man play, like carnivals. You go to a carnival game, you know, what, what do they say? Hey, five bucks, you get this big doll that probably costs like 50 cents. It makes you think you earned something better, right? Idolatry makes you exchange something better for something lesser. It makes you believe that you got something better. In Psalm 106, it says, they exchange the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. In the Hebrew, I think in the New King James, it actually says, they exchange their glory. The glory was yours, was theirs, God's glory, but we exchange it for an idol. Idolatry is like prostitution. Ezekiel 16, 17. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I have given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. Idolatry, you're selling yourself for something else. 
Idolatry is a serpent's voice in the garden that is mass-produced. What I mean by that is, in the garden, what's the first thing the serpent says to Eve? Did God really say that? Did God really say that? Did God really say that? Idols is just that one voice, bottled, packaged, shipped, mass-produced, distributed in all shapes and forms. Underneath every idol is just that one thing. Did God really say that? Okay, here's a definition I made for idolatry. Idolatry is a misplaced dependency for security and significance in something other than God, which is rooted in fear and that is expressed by design control. So it's our dependency for significance and security, but not in God, in something else. And it's not in God because it's fear. And out of fear, we want to control things. You see, we can't control God. We could trust him, we could rely on him, he'll give to us, but we can't control him. But idols, we could control, right? We could decide when we want to keep giving to the idol, when we want to stop, when we want to go back to it, how much we want to give, how little we want to give. God wants everything. He wants all of us. We can't control God, and that's why there's idolatry in our hearts. But isn't a surrender life to God who will give you everything so much better? Isn't it so much more freeing? Okay, so identifying idols. More practical. How can we check our hearts? What can we do to check our hearts to, to, to check for potential idolatry in there? We must keep doing this because it's a pull. Once again, there's a pull to idolatry. We're not immune to it. So these are the two questions. What do you put your security in? What do you put your security in? And another way to find out the answer to that is where are your fears? Psalm 139.23, David says, search my heart and know my anxious thoughts. You could ask God, search my heart, where are my anxious thoughts? Because under fear lies the trap of idolatry. There's a pull underneath every fear. And underneath every fear is an opportunity for the enemy to plant a lie and say what God said is not true. You see, the enemy does not have an authority over your, your, your willpower. It doesn't have authority over your thinking. But what it could do is it could plant lies and woo you into idolatry. Here's the here's truth about your security. There is nothing in this life, in this world, in this existence that is 100% secure and guaranteed except for the word of God. That's it. No matter how secure something may seem, it's not secure. That $5 billion trust fund is not 100% guaranteed. That's the truth about your security. Okay, second way to find out where there may be idolatry in your heart is, where do you draw your significance from? In other words, where do you get your self-worth? You see, once again, as image-bearing creations, we're made to draw significance for something. And that's by drawing from the creator and that's where we get our significance. So where are you drawing your significance from? Is it, is it money? Is it things? Is it your career, your performance? When people tell you to do a good job and you get praise? Is it sex and relationships? Is it children and family? And also, it could be religion. That's the tricky one, even religion. You could say, in the name of Jesus, fulfill my idol. So we got to watch out for these things. And let me just be clear, these aren't bad things. Idols are mostly, most, for the most part, not bad things. 
They just can't be the ultimate thing. That's all it is. Don't make it the ultimate. Th most of them are things that God gave you to, to enjoy, to steward, to desire, but they can't be ultimate. So here's the truth about your significance. There is nothing in this life that can assess your worth at a higher value than the price of the sun. Your worth was determined and purchased on the cross. That's it. What other significance do you want to draw from, from that, from the way God assessed you on the, on the cross? Okay, breaking idols. So in Col Colossians 3, it says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God when Christ, who is our life, appears. Then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. So Paul is saying, put to death the idolatry. Do you know what that means? That means we have the authority to do it. We have the power to put to death our idolatry. And number two, we have the responsibility to do it. That's on us. So how do we break our idols? Choose love over fear. You got to know that you're a love child of God. And you got to embrace that. You got to own it. You got to believe it. And you got to operate as a love person of God. Because only can love break fear. Perfect love casts out fear. So when there's any fears that you're dealing with, you got to get back onto the platform and saying, I'm loved first. See, you don't remove fear by, by not thinking about it or combating it. You need something bigger than the fear to displace the fear, and that's God. Replace lies with truth. Once again, under the fear are lies. So go after the word of God that is a bigger truth than those lies. Spend time with God. Ask him, God, what is the truth here? What am I believing that's, that's not good, that's, that's corrupt? What is your word over this? Seek it in the word of God. Seek it in the Bible. Seek it in your community. We have to go after the truth and replace the lies with it. The number one, last one is devotion, the most important one. The devotion to the one instead of the many and the others. I'm going to read the remainder of today's text. So back to Deuteronomy 4.32. This is how Moses ends this part, of this part of the sermon. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out the midst of the fire, as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand and outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before our eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and there is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice and he might discipline you. And on the earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, 
to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Now therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. This is how you devote yourself to God. Remember. Reflect on God. Here Moses is saying, remember what God did. Who else can do these things? Think about your life. What are some things that happen in your life that only God could accomplish? Maybe some of you don't have that testimony yet. Believe for it. Ask for it. So you can grab a hold of those testimonies. And once you recognize the things he's done, enter into thankfulness. When you have a blessing, blessing plus complacency is idolatry. It leads to idolatry. Because you forget who is it that gave you that blessing. Blessing plus thankfulness is worship. So the question to ask yourself is, is God worthy of all your devotion? Is he? Is he worthy of it all? The last verse in 40, it says, Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, and it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. If you're devoted to him, you'll keep his commandments. You'll obey, you'll trust, you'll listen, you'll follow and you'll get all the inheritance that he offered you, he promised you. Okay, I'm just gonna end this with the image-bearing principle. Remember earlier I said, the flip side of idolatry is image-bearing. So once again, we are created to bear the image of God. That's our design. We are designed to reflect and become like the thing we worship. So that's the image-bearing component in us. But what happens when you don't worship God and he's everything? We still have that reflecting, image-bearing component in us. We devolve into the idols that we worship. Psalm 115.4 says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, they do not speak. Eyes they have, but do not see. they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, so in everyone who trusts in them, so is everyone who trusts in them. We become like the idols that we worship if we don't make God our one and only. Just a kind of like a modern day case study for this is let's look at today. About 300 years ago, there was the enlightenment, the, the age of reason. And from that moment, what the world was saying is that Oh, the solution to all the human problems is science, reason, intellect. We gotta unhitch from God, because it's not the solution. So fast forward 300 years, 200 years. What we find, what we're, what we're seeing in the world today is a reaction to that saying, science didn't work. The human project in science and intellect didn't work. Why is the world still a mess? So now the reaction to that in this generation is, it's not about science, it's not about religion, it's not about truth, it's about me, my feelings, my experience. And that's what we're seeing today in this, what we call postmodern world. So the idolatry of today is me. It's the idolatry of self. And we see the product of idolizing self. It's kind of like, um, you know, when we reflect something, remember, you guys remember copying machines, Xerox machines, right? When you make a copy of something, it's a little bit like, it's a little cruddy, right? There's a little bit of black spot, it's not perfect. What happens when you make a copy of that? 
it comes out even worse. So we're reflecting ourselves and ourselves and ourselves and not God, and we're just devolving as a society. So that's what I'm, what I'm seeing here. This is what I mean by idolatry is at the heart of things. There's an increased perversion and distortion of self because we are no longer drawing our image from a perfect being, which is our Lord. So what is the role of the church, the body of Christ? Well, first, let's see what Jesus did for us. He came here and he reflected the image of God, the Father, perfectly. In that, he revealed the Father to us. In Colossians 1, 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So he gave us a blueprint. He said, this is what the Father looks like. This is what it looks like to reflect God eternally. And then he took all our sins, put it on the cross, and he gave us another opportunity to, to continue his mission. And that's where the role of the Holy Spirit comes in. The Holy Spirit's at work, and he's conforming us into his image. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, and we, and we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is a spirit. This is, this is good news. To reflect the image of God, we don't have to worry about how do we behave like God? How do we create ourselves to be like God? That's not our job. The Holy Spirit in us is constantly making us, and we're, we're, shining, we're shining more like him. Our role is to obey and yield to the work of the Holy Spirit. Are we saying yes? Are we saying yes to our convictions? That's all he's asking from us. And from there, the Holy Spirit will do the work, and we will reflect God in our own way. And then here's the role of the church. Colossians 3.10 says, Put on the self which is being renewed, who is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him. Put on the new self, the image of God, the image of Christ. We put it on because we have to reflect this back into creation. We have to reflect this back into society. And if you want proof of this, just take a look at church history. When society and culture were at its darkest, it's always the church that influenced culture to bring light to those places. So don't be discouraged with what you're seeing today. Because as long as we do our part, that's all we need to do. We do our part, we reflect God, carry Christ's image in, in our own context, at work, in our family, our neighbors, that's it. Don't worry about what's going on in the overall society. If everyone does their part in the church, society and culture will change. I have so much hope in the church that is in Christ that bears his image. So put on his image, which means to live a life in trust and obedience in God. Church, let's be set apart for him. So the world knows that with this kind of devotion, it reveals the one true God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that it was always in your heart, always in your plan, always in your mercy that you were going to redeem creation. That you were going to redeem creation through the Son, Jesus. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we could partake in this. So Lord, we just repent 
if there's any idolatry in our hearts, search our hearts. If there's any pitfalls to that, we just ask you to reveal it and convict us. And we just say no, and we repent. And we just redevote ourselves to you this day. We say that you are our one and only God. Because in that devotion, all idols fall. It has no grip. And Lord, help us be the image of Christ. Like Pastor David Greco said, reveal Jesus, show Jesus to the world. Help us see what that is in our own context, in our own assignments, in our daily lives, Lord. And Father, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rescue Church podcast. For more information, visit rescuechurch.tv slash invite.